This episode is sponsored by Gorichka Clothing. That's K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A. Gorichka Clothing makes t-shirts, tote bags, and other cool things inspired by Russian and Ukrainian culture, pre-Putin, of course. They're also currently working on a cookbook that will be filled with Russian recipes, food-related history, literature, and beautiful illustrations. I'm looking at the shirts right now, and they're awesome. They've got one that's got all sorts of drawings of what goes into a borscht soup and a big pot of the stuff at the bottom. You should check it out. Go to gorichkaclothing.com. That's K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A clothing.com. Or check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash gorichkaclothing. K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A clothing. Hello and welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hi. And Jenna Ipkar. Hello. How you guys doing today? I'm alright. Good. John, you were telling me uh, you're taking an acting class, right? Yeah. Uh, as some of y'all might remember, and the rest of you who don't remember this should look this up, I did an interview a few weeks ago, I guess it was now, with uh, Joan Darling, who was a pioneering director of American television, one of the first women directors to make it into television. She did uh, Mary Tyler Moore and MASH and all these. One of the things she said that really struck me because I direct was um, the importance of having experience on the other side of the camera as a director to understand how to approach actors in their language. So as of this morning, I started taking an acting class at a T. Schreiber studio down in Chelsea. Nice. And how many people are in the class? Nine. So it's pretty intimate. intimate. Yeah. We just said intimate at the exact same time. That was a very intimate thing to happen. (laughs) Yeah. I hope that comes out in the recording in a nice, intimate way. Oh, yeah. I think she has a point. I think uh, also it's probably good just for meeting actors. I mean, just in general. But uh, I guess there is like kind of a disconnect from how a director would talk about something and how an actor might be used to talking about something just from the acting classes they've been through and from school. And there's like a frame of reference that can be kind of a disconnect, I guess. Well, even more than that, I've even through just one, I've already learned a few things that don't work just by sitting there and learning what you dread Mm. when you're sitting there waiting to go up. And um, what was pointed out to me in the class that never occurred to me before was that you have to be careful with the positive feedback you give actors because you don't want to like say... You really like somebody's, um, this sort of like facial expression they flash for one moment in the heat of the moment in one scene. And you really like it and you, you think that's kind of a, a route you want to go down. If you tell them you like that, then that's flagged for them. And that becomes something that they can't lose themselves in it again. They, they have to worry about replicating it, which you can't do, honestly. You kind of got to learn to be vague but supportive in your uh, positive feedback. Because if you get too specific, then you give people speed bumps. You want to sort of lead them to the place where they had that moment rather than tell them to have that moment again. Yeah, rather than even point out to them that it was a moment. Because right. a lot of the best stuff, I think, you don't realize as it's happening that it's a moment. Mm. So how do you do that? Just through trying to get them to have the same emotional reaction? Yeah, you kind of 
it's the horse to water thing. You kind of just make sure they feel safe and make sure all the circumstances are as close as you can get it. And you just sort of, you try to take all the obstacles out of their way. And then if you think they need a certain obstacle to veer them, you know, you subtly put those in the way. And is it mostly uh, exercises? Or are you doing little dialogue pieces? Or Yeah, I mean, it was only the first day, so it's just okay. exercises for now. But then it'll work its way up to, to scenes. Joan Darling said, uh, the, the bit that struck me most in her interview was she said that sometimes all it takes to be a good director is to be nice to people. Which is funny because when you read the interviews with a lot of the great directors, you get the opposite sense. When you read from, say, Hitchcock or John Ford or Orson Welles, even you get this sense that, you know, the trick to directing is yelling at people. But it's really not. And that's sort of a smokescreen that the great directors put up to, I think, mask what they're really doing. Like there's this great story on Stagecoach, John Ford. um, It was the first starring role for John Wayne and everybody else in the movie was famous already. So there was this sort of unspoken tension on set that this like young fucking new guy was taking the prime spot and all these great actors were in the background. So John Ford was really mean to John Wayne for most of that shoot, like really bad to him. And um, it wasn't until years later, some there's some interview with one of them. It might have been um, Thomas Mitchell, but one of them, there's some interview with him where he said he realized years later that what John Ford was doing was making all the other actors feel like they had to be on John Wayne's side. Mm, that's a great point. That's a great uh, strategy. Yeah. So you got to you gotta keep us posted on how this, this acting class thing goes. Yeah, keep you all in the loop. Yeah. Jenna, you've been, uh, you've been brushing up on your Steven Seagal here. <laughs> well, after one of these podcasts, you guys were both talking about Steven Seagal. I forget for what reason. And I, because I mentioned... Because it's the greatest thing to talk about. Yeah, that's what two men do in their that's privacy right. of their own home. At the end of any event that men are a part of, it's usually like this uh, recuperation of talking about Steven Seagal before moving on to other things. Totally. This is something you would learn if you'd ever been in like a men's bathroom, anywhere with men. Sometimes it's Clint Eastwood. It can Seagal, be. Seagal, Eastwood. Oh, but the girls talk about Eastwood too. Yeah, but it's different. <laughs> Seagal, Eastwood, Schwarzenegger less than you'd think now. It's true. It used to be a hot topic, now not so much. What about Steve McQueen? Goes without saying. Yeah. All right, well, so. you were both talking about him. And I happen to mention, very embarrassingly, that action movies in general, I've not seen a lot of them, especially these big, you know, like, um, you know, you guys were even saying it earlier, like Van Damme, I've never seen. Uh, I can't even list other ones because I don't even remember. It's terrible. So, so I mentioned that and then Cody was horrified and immediately handed me a DVD of four movies. Yeah, it was a four film Steven Seagal collection and it's got Above the Law, Fire Down Below, the Glimmer Man and Under Siege. And I told her she has to see Above the Law first, then she needs to see Fire Down Below. And Fire Down Below is my personal favorite, Steven Seagal. I think that's just a masterpiece of Seagal. So you watched Above the Law first. What were your What were your thoughts on uh, on that one? That's the one with uh, Pam Greer, I think. Yeah, I like Pam Greer. I was yeah. surprised she was in that. Above the Law was funny because I there's something mesmerizing about Steven Seagal. There's something so wooden about him that it's mesmerizing. He's wooden in the best possible way, almost. The way he runs, even. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> but actually, you know, more than anything, I was just more impressed with how many languages he speaks, which maybe is partially acting, but his Japanese sounded pretty good. Well, yeah, he he studied Aikido for... Or Aikido, or however I should properly 
be pronouncing See, that. See, if you were Steven Seagal, you would know. But he was a, you know, very high-ranking black belt in Aikido and was the first non-Japanese uh, high-ranking black belt in that. So that was his first claim to fame, so to speak, before he started doing movies and all that. So I, I would assume that he was pronouncing the Japanese properly and had familiarity with that. Yeah, and I mean, overall, all in all, I mean, the plot was pretty flat. And I mean, he certainly, it's so funny when he's sort of projected as this like sexy, cool character when he's just nothing. <laughs> well, that was also him at his skinniest, that film. That's <laughs> Oh a, boy, I have that to look forward that's to. That's when he has a jawline. Yeah, he bloats fast <laughs> and hard. And a hairline. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he, uh, his hairline is a, is, a, is a fascinating subject. <laughs> he's <laughs> aged the worst of them, I think. Yeah. Stallone right. looks frightening in a good way now. Mm-hmm. Seagal looks... Tragic now. Right now, it's a big dumb mess. Seagal has this like V shaped, unnatural uh, widow's peak that just looks like uh, you you know, you just kind of painted it on. (laughs) It's kind of ridiculous. And, um, but I I love him. I'll I'll take any Seagal, skinny or ginormous, you know? Well, I loved his fruity leather coat and, um, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, what's it? Fire down below. Yeah. So I'm actually surprised Fire Down Below got such shitty ratings on Rotten Tomatoes because I thought that was actually strangely watchable. It's a very good movie. It's got Harry Dean Stanton in it. It's yeah. Got- Action movies never get honest ratings on that. Action movies, sci-fi movies, and horror movies, it's always deduct three points. Romantic comedies also. Mm. It's always just deduct like 15, 20%. Yeah, there's definitely a genre bias with that. But you, you dug Fire Down Below. You you enjoyed the... Yeah, I found it to be sort of just strangely watchable. Um, I, I liked the sort of... Uh, the weird mix of LeVon Helm with Steven Seagal. Right, he's in it. With this, like, sort of country hick. You know, that the fact that, that anyone is even accepting that he can go move down to that town and, and just is just the normal new guy in town, you know, like, without any question. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite aspect of that movie... And I, I'm not 100% sure of this, but in retrospect, I always remember it as that's the case. He doesn't take like a single bit of damage in that entire film. I don't think anybody lands a punch even. It's all deflecting and it's all pushing people away. And I don't think anybody even lands an attack on him that he even feels any hurt from whatsoever. Do you remember that at all? Or Now that you mention it. I don't, maybe he doesn't. I think you might be right. He sure as hell beats the shit out of some people, though. He does. And I think that's a, that's one of the examples of, like, one of the only action movies where the hero doesn't take any hits whatsoever. I gotta look through it again and see if I can make sure. If it, if he does take damage, it's, like, one hit or something. Because I remember when I was watching it, I started counting. I was like, wait a second. Like, nothing's happening to this guy <laughs> whatsoever. It's all just deflections and a lot of defense, because Aikido is about you know, using the person's energy against them and using their momentum to sort of direct them in a way that doesn't hurt you in any way. Well, he sure does it with that entire truck. Yeah. Deflects it off a cliff. Pretty much. So you, uh, you're a big fan of Fire Down Below too, John. Yeah, I don't have the fondness for Seagal that you do overall. He's, I think he's the worst of the major action guys, but Fire Down Below is a ton of fun. And um, Above the Law, I think, is a lot of fun. He has a few that... The thing with Seagal is I think he was so bad and everybody knew he was that they really stepped up the supporting cast and environment around him in a lot of those early ones in a way that when Stallone, for example, had his real renaissance period in the early mid 80s, 
nobody gave him any support in any of those movies because they didn't give a shit. You could just put the camera on Stallone, put him somewhere vaguely in L.A. and you had a movie like Cobra or those. But with Seagal, I feel like they had to do so much work to bring him to the Stallone caliber that you ended up with these accidentally better movies around him with this sort of black hole in the middle. Yeah, and he he's one of those guys where like he's great in that he's not doing much. Like that's a, that's the thing that you always want from actors in general. And because he's not even a, a natural actor to begin with, doing much that never even enters into his mind. Yeah, you know th- that choice of giving more when you're making a film, you're always trying to bring the actors away from theater a lot of the times. So, like anybody that has experience in theater, you want things a little smaller because they don't really understand that like. The back seat in the theater is like way far away and you have to do stuff for that back row. But when you're shooting a film, the back row is like sometimes four inches in front of your face. So you can do very small movements with your mouth and delivery can be a lot flatter and it can still come across well. You know, he never considers the back row whatsoever. He's always very small with uh, his dialogue and just his movements and everything. And I think it's almost like a David Mamady kind of vibe he almost feels like he walked out of like house of games or something <laughs> you know he has that quality to him which i appreciate is he your favorite of all that he absolutely yeah and there's this guy Vern from uh ain't it cool news who i think coined the term but um he he's what is known as a badass auteur in that in all of his films even though he didn't write them or direct them or anything they all have the same kind of vibe of he saves an animal he turns a lot of guys weapons against them he there's always like an environmental tinge to something going on they all have this uh this vibe where it's like it's almost like he's a woody allen kind of guy where all of his movies kind of feel the same so his whole thing was like the badass auteur theory that he's so badass and he's so him that any director or writer that he's attached with it just carries over just the seagal vibe just carries over That was a big thing for like 10 to 15 years. You had um, Stallone always has, he makes, Stallone's really into like fitness drinks and stuff. So starting with Rocky with the eggs and the thing, he always has some sort of like special weird meal he eats. He has these very specific gestures he uses and everything. Arnold always has the cigar. He always uses those two or three lines from Terminator over and over and everything. It's kind of out of favor now. And it kind of didn't, I think maybe like Bruce Lee was the first one like that. And it's interesting to me because you have some of these guys like Mel Gibson probably made as many action movies as any of them. But you don't really think of him as an action guy because I don't think he ever really did that. Right. There wasn't a motif. Yeah. But Gibson in the 80s, I think, was my favorite of all the action guys. From the Road Warrior to the Lethal Weapon streak, I think he, he just committed and he was the best of all of those guys. But he didn't have his signatures. Mm. And you've always been a proponent of Lethal Weapon over Die Hard. Yeah. Die Hard, I think, is a perfect script wasted on that movie. Mm -hmm. And Lethal Weapon is a pretty good script, elevated by really great setting, really beautiful lighting, tremendous actors, and this just humanity. I always like these action movies where there's kind of a humanity that seeps into all of it. Mm. Die Hard comes close, but it doesn't really have that for me. Lethal Weapon, all four of them, they feel really... um, Howard Hawksy to me. There's just this sort of camaraderie of good action movies. I think a lot of times you have this sense that these people are the best in the world at what they do. And that can lead to the dark night brooding bullshit, but it can also lead to this like easy 
sort of light vibe where they don't, even in horrible danger, they don't really sweat it. Mm. And Lethal Weapon, I think, mastered that that vibe. Lethal Weapon was really well regarded, like in my childhood. And then it seems like people have kind of forgotten about that movie. It got overshadowed by Die Hard and by Predator. Yeah. Because they were right around the same time. And Die Hard, for some reason, the stature of that film has risen so much. And there's this conception that it was... People think Die Hard invented a lot of things it didn't invent. Like this idea of the, the everyman action hero who's getting his ass kicked, but still wins in the end. That was Raiders of the Lost Ark was before Die Hard. Road Warrior was before Die Hard. They had done that already. But Die Hard, for some reason, it's this kind of nucleus of this genre. And I'm a huge fan of that genre. And Die Hard is one of my least favorite of the golden era of the action movie. You ever seen Die Hard, Jenna? No. I think you got to get on it. It's uh, it's one that I really liked as a kid. And it falls into that Back to the Future thing of, I just really don't want to watch it anymore. Whereas I want to, I, I would be into watching like Lethal Weapon right now. Yeah, I'd drop this podcast right now if we Lethal could, Weapon was on. We could hit stop. <laughs> we could put Lethal Weapon on. We could put some of the old Seagal stuff on. I would, thinking about Fire Down Below, I'd watch that right fucking now. But Die Hard, it like, I, I wonder what it would be like for you to see it with like eyes now. Because I think a lot of the allure of that comes from seeing it as a kid and it being this singular film when you're a kid. Like it's your first exposure to... This kind of everything taking place in one location and there being a lot of action and guns and it's like this likable everyman guy, as he said. It's weird also visually in in ways that I think um, hurt it. Some movies are weird visually and it really helps. Like Drive was weird visually, but I thought it was an asset. In Die Hard, I think it hurts it. It was uh, the cinematographer was um, what's his face? Van Bont, the guy who directed Speed. Yeah, Jean Van Bont. Yeah, he was a cinematographer on Die Hard. He did this weird thing where he shot the whole movie with this high grain, high speed. I think it was a film stock used primarily for compositing. It was like a special effects film stock. So it has that flat, ultra grainy, everything is some shade of gray look Mm. that it could work. But for some reason, it just does not click with that movie for me. I think it's hard to look at. It is very high grain when I think about it. And that kind of works for like whenever you see blood in the film, I think. Like there's some shots like where I think he shoots like somebody's legs or something from like under a table or something and it goes a little slow yeah, motion. Yeah. But like blood kind of, I always like blood and high high grain stuff. I always think that like looks a little, little bit better. But yeah, it is a kind of a weird. All the funny, exteriors are a mess. Mm. Like when the SWAT team's coming in and when they're um, flying the helicopters in, that all looks just wrong to me. It doesn't look like anything. Right. And the the uh, the green screen stuff kind of looks weird too, yeah. The, uh, the falls from like places and stuff. yeah, it's just a weird looking movie. Yeah, I saw The Matrix years after it came out, and I was so unimpressed because I had seen all of the fake versions of The Matrix before that. I was unimpressed with The Matrix because I had seen Blade already when The Matrix came out. Ah, good point. I adored Blade, man. That yeah. was that was like The Matrix for me. Me too. Yeah, that wiry, big black coats. And everybody up on wires thing, but it it the Matrix doesn't. It even when it came out, it never really felt cool to me. Blade still feels cool to me. Yeah, and I think it's all snipes. And also, did you ever see that Jet Li one, the one? Yes, where he hits the guy with the motorcycle. I like that way better than the Matrix. The rules of that movie, the rules of like the universe in that film, I thought were pretty much smarter than the Matrix because 
it felt way more succinct. Yeah. Whereas with the Matrix, they were kind of making it up as they went on and then made it up as they went on with like two and three. Did you that see was two a and big three? Problem with Jenna, two and three. Did you end up going? No, I never good. even bothered. Don't, please they don't. didn't they didn't know what they were doing with the setting. They forgot what setting they were in. Yeah, in they the sequels. switched set like there was that weird like rave where it was like everybody's all like Wearing tattered, like, brown yeah. clothing. And, and Blade had already written the book on how to do an exactly. action rave. Yeah. That blood rave and Blade should be in the Smithsonian. <laughs> that scene is incredible. Perfect scene. I haven't seen Blade either. Right. Oh, Blade's well, flawless. I think we've learned that it's not just Seagal that you're lacking. You're lacking a lot of uh, great of these, action. Yeah, all of these action movies. I, I, admit, I admit it's just that I, I like violent movies, actually. I'm pretty into war movies. So I can deal with like blood and guts, but there's like a corniness to it. Most action movies that I've just avoided, but it's time. I, I gotta, it is time. I gotta and learn. We'll, I gotta grow up. We'll check back with your progress. I think I'm going to give you like Hard to Kill and Out for Justice and On Deadly Ground today to... To watch and maybe we'll check in on Jenna's progress in the future. Um, but the the main topic for today we really want to delve into is the idea of local film and homegrown film and you know using actual locations rather than building locations. And uh, I think John can take it away to start with. Yeah, this is a topic me and Cody keep going back on actually because for a while there, me and him. We're talking about doing, do you remember this? We're talking about doing like a film festival, a YouTube film festival. Right. Where we we pull these short, honest, truthful clips that we find on YouTube that sort of express a place and a, and a, and a sort of character to a location. And we play those in a gallery in the city. But for whatever reason, it didn't it didn't pop off. It might we, be we got we distracted We still might do it at a certain point because I think it's definitely worth doing. There's so many little videos on there that maybe have like 100 views, 200 views, and they're perfect little honest short films. Like one of my favorites, and this one has way more views than that, um, this kid Jack Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N, if you want to look it up, he has this video called Pouring Water on a Dead Pig or something. And I swear to you, it's one of the best like avant-garde experimental films you've ever seen. Like it has that... Like what Harmony Corinne was trying to get in like Gummo and stuff, little 10 year old Jack Dixon fucking nailed it. Okay. Cause he's just on his farm and there's like a dead pig, I think. And he's like, all right, this is, we're going to pour water on dead pig. And with maggots, it's, it's pouring water on a dead pig with maggots is the name of it. It sounds like a fucking grindcore song. <laughs> and, uh, he just goes over this dead pig with maggots on it. He just pours some water on it. He's like, oh, man, look at that. It's so sick. Oh, man, look, 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 water. Like, all the maggots are, like, sort of moving around. Do you remember where it's that one, kid's from? That's It's out west somewhere, right? Yeah, He's yeah. Wyoming or something like that. Probably. It, it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. That little It's definitely that, film. like, Montana to Wyoming, north of the desert stretch, yeah. though, right? And that that's key to me, because when was the last time that you saw, with the exception of Nebraska, when was the last time you saw a movie take place off the coast? Yeah. Because I remember, going back to action for a second, I've always been a big Burt Reynolds fan. And I love those those early Burt Reynolds movies from um, White Lightning to uh, to Gator to um, Smokey and the Bandits. First couple Smokey and the Bandits. And part of why I like them, particularly Deliverance, part of why I like them is they really evoke this very honest look at Living in a swamp, which is 
something very specific and beautifully cinematic. One of um, the guy who did Nanook of the North, one of his later films was called Louisiana Story. And it just followed this kid who lived in the swamps in Louisiana for an hour and a half. And it's, I mean, it's stunning. It's a stunning setting and it's this stunning sort of look at a life which is so apart from the norm. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about film when you can do that. And it's something that we should be seeing more of with the distribution now of all these cameras. But it's something I feel like we're seeing less of. A great source of them in the 60s to the 70s were... um, There are all these regional drive-in movies in the South. Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff like 2000 Maniacs, which is just a great film anyway. And um, Spider Baby, the Jack Hill movie. And there was this guy, R. John Hugh, who his stuff wasn't even regional. I think it really stayed in Florida. And uh, I grew up in South Florida by the Everglades. And he made a couple movies down there. One of them you can find on archive.org. It's called Yellowneck. And it's about these Confederate soldiers who desert from the, their army in Georgia and flee down the Everglades to try to get to freedom. And um, the thing about the Everglades is that it's a setting you can't fake because there's no other ecosystem on the planet Earth that's like them. So you either you have it or you don't have it. And you can't do it in a studio, even now. And Yellowneck, it's not a great film. It gets a little lumpy, but when it's on, it's it's this stunning cultural document. And that's the type of stuff that I'm always hungry for. And I, I have a hard time finding. I remember like, I, I loved Spring Breakers, but I've never been to Florida whatsoever. And you were telling me that it, it rang very true for you. Spring Breakers. And I would say that like 15 minutes of adaptation where they're with Chris Cooper, those two for me, they really, they feel like they really caught it in adaptation. There's that scene where Chris Cooper is driving around in his truck and you just, the flatness and the shortness of the buildings next to him, and the quality of the light hitting that windshield, was it just felt very purely Florida to me. You know, the problem with a lot of these cameras that are being used as opposed to when they're shooting adaptation is uh, everyone's kind of using like the Alexa and like a lot of these very specific, you know, 4K whatever cameras. And I, I start to see the camera when I'm watching the film rather than seeing the location. Because I think adaptation was 35 millimeter. Yeah. So there's something where like the technology is moving so fast that to capture an area, you can't help but see the camera when you're doing it a bit. See, I don't mind that. I feel like sometimes that that's an asset. If you look at stuff like um, when we talk about New York, this is going to be a big one. Stuff like the Morris Engel movies, like Little Fugitive. You guys ever see those? Yeah, yeah. Little Fugitive is amazing it's spectacular and so much of what works for me about it is it's this sort of high contrast 16 millimeter shot with a camera with a lot of limitations so it really speaks to that era yeah i I guess savage eye which savage eye cody and i saw uh i sprang this movie savage eye at him once they were playing it at uh was the whitney yeah it's uh it was part of a series they were doing on movies that inspired edward hopper it's just sort of an hour and a half drifting through L.A. with this camera. And that's one where I feel like the the specific quality of the camera spoke to the setting. Right. I think what I mean about the, the Alexa and a lot of these newer cameras that are becoming the standard, like everyone's kind of moved away from red. But for, for a time, I could tell like a red camera, like a lot of the Soderbergh stuff kind of just had this 
this vibe where you just see how the camera likes light and it's conforming to how the camera likes light. It homogenizes in a way where like you're trying to do the thing as fast as possible. So it's like, all right, this is how we shoot with a red. This is how we shoot with an Alexa and everything conforms to that. Like, I know you liked uh, shame a lot, but I think that's one of the problems I had with shame was that it didn't read enough like New York. Whereas if I saw it, shot with a different camera with different lighting i might have been more into the film might that be like a decade problem though i feel like you know you tend to have like i i sort of i know what you're talking about i mean i think part of it is sort of a filmmaker issue because the normal guy going to a movie probably isn't going to know he's watching an alexa movie whereas like anyone in this room is like oh yeah it looks like (laughs) and i have nothing against the alexa just to say but it's just yeah no i know what you're talking about but i i mean i wonder if that also is just sort of like an uh just like a choice, really. I mean, like if I look at movies from the seventies that are take place in New York, they feel really like New York City to me, even yeah. though I wasn't alive in the seventies in New York. You, then, whereas you look at something like Shame, uh, I think that that was in New York, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It sort of is more like this two thousands New York, which is not really my New York. Or Shame my caught me in small details. Uh, Armand White, who is also New York based, said that anybody who lives in New York would recognize that shame is made by somebody who's not a New Yorker, Ah. which I think is true about it, but I think it's true in a good way. It's sort of a, I think sometimes the best movies, the truest movies to a region are ones that are shot by somebody out of the region, like Herzog's South America movies and all that. You know, you get this sort of fresh perspective and shame feels like it really picked up on the small peculiarities of particularly that finance district of New York. As somebody who, I have a lot of friends who, are in finance and work on Wall Street and everything. And shame to me felt like it caught those details better than Wolf of Wall Street. Just the small things like him coming in at 1030 with a with a Red Bull in his hand. And, you know, just the way they interacted at bars with the bartenders and with other patrons there. It all felt the physical gestures and the people felt right to me. Yeah, I guess it's a thing where, like, when you live in a certain region, you do have a certain bias where... If it doesn't conform to your experience with the region, it might feel like a little alien at first. It might feel a little off. So yeah. I think that was probably my gut reaction to shame. But you, what you pointed out about um, the office and the bar interactions, it did, it did definitely feel honest. I mean, you both are Brooklyn, which yeah, at this point is a whole different world from Manhattan. Shame didn't feel Brooklyn at all to me, but it felt like it really picked up these almost great Gatsby-esque bits of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. You know, the way Fitzgerald would meander through a party and pick out these little tiny details that were just telling for those patrons. I felt like that's what shame did. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that we're both Brooklyn. It's I feel like, you know, Brooklyn even now is is not Brooklyn. It was even no, 10 years yeah. ago. But uh, yeah, you know, there were so many movies actually shot just in this area, um, a couple blocks from where we are right now. Um, Dog Day Afternoon was shot in this area. Dog Day Afternoon was Park Slope. Yeah, it was in Windsor Terrace. Oh, oh, wow! And um, even and next door to that was, uh, you know, you talk about homegrown filmmaking. The first thing I actually thought of was Blue in the Face, Mm. which was um, Wayne Wang. Yeah, and also it was Smoke. It was this weird, um, and Paul Oster uh, wrote it. There was they were shooting Smoke, and then they they came in under budget, or basically in between takes, they started to shoot a completely improvised movie in the same exact setting in this smoke shop on a corner, Brooklyn street corner. Uh, and they just shot an entirely different movie with all the same people. 
And then they had like these weird cameos of like Jim Jarmusch or like Lou Reed just kind of walk into the store and like hang out. And that was such a not really a good movie, in my opinion. It has its moments, but not great. But it's very New York. It's very 90s Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. It's eerily so. You know, I I didn't see that one until maybe a couple years back. And I wasn't even aware that somebody had captured that 90s Park Slope vibe on film before. Like, I, I thought we just missed it. Before I saw that movie, my only taste of that was in the very intro uh, sort of credits crawl of the Noah Baumbach movie Highball. There's a shot where it's just he shot it just in a car, I guess, driving down 7th Avenue in Park Slope. And it's just, you know, it's kind of a fast shot, but it's capturing all these fronts of these stores. A lot of them gone. A lot of them entirely different storefronts now if they're still around. And that was my like only glimpse of like this area. And I would like savor that one shot. And it's kind of like an F movie. Like most of it takes place in a, a party location. So you're not seeing any other exteriors other than that one long shot. But that was like my only taste of it until I saw smoke and blue in the face. And I think I like blue in the face a little bit more than you did just because, you know, probably bias, just nostalgia stuff. Cause it's not a great movie. There are a lot of stuff, a lot of scenes that don't really work, but it might've helped if I had seen smoke. <laughs> I saw I smoke saw afterwards. Smoke. I saw oh, smoke really? right after. Um, cause I saw blue in the face and I was like, all right, well now I have to see smoke. And I just jumped on that right away. Smoke is, uh, smoke is a little bit more languid it's it's got more of a story and not all of it takes place in that location. Blue in the face is pretty much that kind of clerks all one location essentially kind of vibe. Whereas smoke, uh, he goes like upstate at some point and he goes around to like there's like a chapter where he's in like the projects I think towards the end. So it it kind of moves around a bit and the characters are a bit different too. It's not the same characters, but I think it's really worth checking out both of those. There's together. definitely for a vibe. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, that was the best part of it. And then mm. there are these, these little cameos that are interesting. And that was, uh, I think it was 15th Street, like right past uh, the circle, right past like the pavilion. I think Dub Pies is there now. Yep. And so that was that was where Smoke was, that corner where Dub Pies is. Have you guys ever seen The Wanderers? Which one's that one? It's mid-70s. It's about, uh, it's set in the 50s. It's about... Uh, Street Gang in the Bronx called The Wanderers. Sure, it's the not The Warriors? Movies, no, different. <laughs> Actually, right around the same time as The Warriors. I think it was the same year. I think they're both 79. Wow. The Wanderers is, I think it's a forgotten classic of Bronx filmmaking. Bronx filmmaking is its whole separate genre. I'm trying to make now my second feature film in the Bronx, and it's addictive because there are so many incredible spots in that borough that have never been filmed. Because nobody goes up there, even though the old Biograph studio, the second film studio in America was in the Bronx and Naked City used to shoot in the Bronx in the 60s. But from the 70s on, there's you're looking at you can count them on two hands, how many movies were genuinely shot there. But The Wanderers is um, The Wanderers is so spot on, not just for the borough, but for a specific 10 block radius of the borough, the Fordham District. A good example is there's there's a uh, army recruitment center in the middle of this um, this complex on Grand Concourse, the intersection of Grand Concourse and Fordham Road, there's still an army recruitment center. And it's just like a little, it looks like a hot dog stand. And it was there in the 50s. And there's a semi-true story that there was this gang called the Fordham Baldies, who were a true gang in the 50s, who they all got drunk one night and all stumbled into this recruitment center and all signed up and all got sent to Korea. Wow. And there's that scene is in the movie. 
And it's just this small background detail in this sort of tapestry of, of life in this borough that you never really see filmed in this time period that there's so much written about it that you can really do it truly. And the Bronx, unlike Manhattan and unlike now, what's becoming a problem in Brooklyn is they never really tore any buildings down in the Bronx because nobody wants to build anything there still. So you still have these street scenes where um, a Bronx tale did this very well, where you can just go for blocks and blocks and blocks and everything was built pre-World War II. So all you need to do is change the awnings a little bit and put new cars in front. Bronx Tale is a gorgeous film. Uh, yeah. The lighting in that one, especially when he's driving the bus, I remember. Just the light coming into the bus and the vibe of that. Bronx Tale is wonderful. I, grew, I, I lived in that neighborhood for a few years. My family is from that neighborhood. My father grew up there. My grandfather grew up there. And Bronx Tale and The Wanderers, I think, are the two that perfectly capture that the vibe of that neighborhood and the look of that neighborhood. Yeah, I definitely have to check the Wanderers soon. That's all, that's reminding me. I actually also live um, next stop Greenwich Village. Yeah, uh, I have a, a poster for that in my apartment. I that's love a that great movie. movie. Yeah, I also you know it's meant to take place in the fifties. They shot it in the seventies, but uh, all about Greenwich Village and great. That's a great New York movie. I Isn't thought it? Inside Lewin Davis was a lot. I thought there are a lot of small structural homages to Next Stop Greenwich Village. Just, I felt like they, it was really in conversation with that movie. Yeah, oh yeah, certainly the same block, you know? Yeah. <laughs> McDougal. The same coffee shop. Yeah, Reggio. Uh, and then also uh, the, the Landlord. Talk about other Brooklyn movies. Hal Ashby's The Landlord was also about, um, you know, just the gentrification, which is actually really interesting now, um, seeing how, how much things have absolutely shot up, even, you know, since the 70s. That's pretty clear throughout New York, but even in Brooklyn. And they shoot these, like, right, you know, right up uh, by Prospect uh, Heights. Mm. New York's tricky, and I feel like London and L.A. are tricky in the same way. Probably Paris, too. In that there are all these movies that are New York that are not shot in New York and not shot by people who really know the layout of New York, which is fine, but you have this sort of, like, all these romantic comedies where people live in New York and everybody is walking along these these stretches of brownstones and everything's really nice and clean. That's not New York. That's Hoboken. It's a different city. And Avengers was a good one. You know, Avengers could spend three hours in New York and you never once felt like you were in a place. Mm. And you'll, Law & Order, I didn't think was a very good show, but Law & Order was very good at capturing a place. But now the, the later Law & Orders and all these other crime shows that shoot in New York now, they're not, they never feel like they captured... You never feel like you're located anywhere. Yeah, setting is like an afterthought with a lot of these. Setting, I feel like, is starting to be lost on the top tier of television and film production. Mm. Because now you set up one square block and green screens on either side, and you shoot it in Toronto. Exactly. And it can be anything. And there's small details that you lose, and small details are what make a setting. A lot of people don't know that about green screen. They still associate green screen with big budget special effects and explosions behind people and people flying through the air and all that. The actual practical application of green screen now is, and I, I know there's a great reel of like green screen examples that are just normal examples. And I'll, I'll put a link to it on the blog post for this. There was shots from like ugly Betty, that show where like they were shooting essentially on a green screen and it looked like they were walking down a block, just talking and stuff. And they never were at that location whatsoever. And, you know, a lot of these shows, they're using green screen for fucking everything. I remember in, um, watching the uh, behind the scenes for the movie Master and Commander. 
uh, really that and it struck me actually because they're on a Madagascar for part of it and there's one scene where they basically they just wanted to get one one character to go up a cliff and then see a ship in the distance. Oh, Paul Bettany. I remember that part. Yep. And but that was all green screen because they, really? they actually wasn't anywhere near coast. <laughs> they just wanted that nice cliff and then they just basically green screened there were like the the whole ocean. I would have, that's amazing. I would have no idea. Yeah, yeah. I remember of, that shot because I watched that fairly recently. That's a great movie. It's so good. I gotta check that one out. You know it blew me away though? And I guess it means that you could do this to an extent even before green screen if you knew what you were doing. The day I learned that Seinfeld was shot in LA. Mm. I didn't even know what to do with myself. Yeah, that was a that was an eye opening one for me. Seinfeld is so spot on. Seinfeld, I think, is closer to New York than most things that were shot in New York in that time period. It's a little eerie. It's like even the way that they stand. Yeah, it's like it, it's down to that level where like, and that's what really matters. The small things like. Well, they have scenes where it doesn't matter, but somebody's double parked in the background. Yeah. Just small cultural touches. They nailed that one. And when you when you talk about McDougal before, you remind me the the intro on Louie. That walk from West 4th Street, you know, the A and the F and all those, to the Comedy Cellar, you know, coming on to McDougal and all that. That little walk is a walk that I actually used to take to an ex-girlfriend's of, my, of mine's house, well, apartment, who was across the street from Comedy Cellar. So that exact Louis walk, I know that walk so well, past like the pizza place on the corner. And like that whole walk is such a New York walk that I hope people realize like when they watch Louis and stuff, that's such a perfect example of a New York City walk from a subway station to somewhere. I also like movies though where they're they're truthful in their heightening of stuff. Uh meaning like Spike Lee I think doesn't do the right thing. That that's always struck me as a very Brooklyn movie and you know and, and it's it's exaggerated in some degree. Some in some other degrees it's definitely not. But um it it creates this sort of atmosphere and it's I wouldn't say that it's I don't know. You guys think it's homegrown? I feel like that he has such a really style. Is. Yeah. I think emotionally it came from such a specific oh yeah emotionally definitely block you know like do the right thing is one of those movies i feel like truly great movies setting wise from a location whether it's new york or tulsa will not be new york they'll be like third and smith in tulsa where in in do the right things case it was so specific to bed Stuy. Mm. there was so much about that movie that was down to the um the best scene in do the right thing is when there's the white guy wearing the Celtics jersey who's lived in Bed-Stuy his whole life. But there are so many little cultural touches of a white guy wearing a Celtics jersey in Bed-Stuy and mm-hmm. what that means and how it doesn't even matter that he's lived there his whole life to a lot of people there. That That's almost a slight. I feel like Do the Right Thing could not have come from somebody who didn't know Brooklyn. Whereas Street Scene, which is this King Vador movie from 31, and it's very good. It's... A lot of what became Do the Right Thing, it's this sort of mounting pressure on one day in New York that ends in violence. And there's a lot of um, people like hanging out of windows, talking to each other. And it really lo- like looks and feels like Do the Right Thing structurally, but it doesn't feel specific the way Do the Right Thing does. It doesn't have that intuitive knowledge of the details that Do the Right Thing does. Uh, did you guys see Red Hook Summer? I saw the first 15 minutes and I couldn't stand the way that the colors were processed on it. I thought (laughs) it was just abysmal. Yeah. I mean, as a movie, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly fantastic. 
but I mean, it's definitely that was another one where I felt like, you know, only someone who's spent a lot of time in Red Hook could really come up with just even the locations uh, as simple as that. And I know that he actually picked out he just went to a local high school, uh, you know, picked out whoever could act <laughs> and I'm sure who looked who looked good and and cast them, which honestly was one of my biggest complaints. I thought the acting was just horrendous in that movie. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's definitely Spike Lee. And then also I was thinking of um, uh, Guy Madden, uh, My Winnipeg, which is a little bit of a sort of like this this fake documentary uh, retelling of his childhood. But he does it in such this uh, such a way that it's very uh, hypnotic and, and strange and sort of flowing. And you get such a strong sense of, of Winnipeg and what Winnipeg is to him. And he also opens it it's all in like black and white. And he narrates it in this very much like, you know, Winnipeg, my Winnipeg, my Snowy, Winnipeg, sleepy Winnipeg. <laughs> my Winnipeg is a great example because I've never been to Winnipeg and I will never go to Winnipeg because I hate the cold. But I feel like after my Winnipeg, I understand at least to one person what it's like in Winnipeg. But that's great because you understand that it's it's that it's, it's that universal hometown like hatred. Like I got to escape this place, but I can't escape this place. And that, that's what it sort of felt like to me. See, it didn't feel like hatred to me. It felt like sort of a... Um, oh, well, it's a love. It's a love-hate. Yeah. I think everybody everybody has a love-hate relationship with where they're from, because everybody has a love-hate relationship with everything in one level or another. The best of these movies, the movies that become cultural documents in that kind of sense, like Do the Right Thing is a cultural document. Saturday Night Fever is a cultural document. And My Winnipeg, I think, is a cultural document, because I think he really tapped into... Just everything it feels about living in a claustrophobically snow-covered, constantly dark, sort of frontier town that's a city. You know, there's so much just character in the location in that movie. I like how he spices it up, though. He adds in these weird elements where halfway through the movie you realize, "Mm, this might not be true. (laughs) Uh, Such as these, uh, there's this whole thing with the horses in in the river. Very interesting. It's really it's a really surreal movie, but you absolutely understand, you know, where he's coming from. And yeah. And, and as you said, it kind of makes you not want to go to Winnipeg. Well, it becomes it's it's the Herzog thing. That movie, I think, is really the ecstatic truth. It's not the facts about Winnipeg, but it's the it's the 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 truth in your heart about that place. I think another example along those lines, probably my favorite example, and I think of it is Buffalo 66, where I've never been to Buffalo but I know so much about his emotions about Buffalo from that movie and the look of that movie and the cold. And uh, just, I mean, he shot that film with reversal stock, color reversal stock, which is what was used to shoot like old football games. Like it was never really used as like to make a movie, but he used that because it just, it for some reason that nailed the perfect Buffalo vibe of capturing these cold, wintry, walking around needing to pee going into like a coffee shop and them like kicking you out like just this this cold harsh vibe of buffalo new york it has that same vibe where like he's capturing a lot of this ugliness but he's capturing in this gorgeous ugly beautiful sort of way and i think you know he's he's very well received by the japanese and they have that kind of like ugly cute i forget what their term for it is but they have like this word for when something is ugly cute rather than something that's cute or something that's ugly. And I think Buffalo 66 is very ugly cute, where he'll pick out aspects of like a a dingy bowling alley, for instance, that are gorgeous, but maybe somebody going in there for like 
20 years would never pick up on these these tiny aesthetics, these very small moments that are the beauty of this location. One guy I really love for this kind of stuff is uh, Eagle Pinnell. He did a bunch of movies in Texas. I've only managed to see two of them. Uh, Last Night at the Alamo and The Whole Shooting Match. And they're both uh, black and white 70s movies shot small scale with just grants from Texas Art Commissions. I think both of them were Houston. They were like East Houston, which is part of Texas I've never been. What is it? It's like Central West Texas. I've never been there. But just from two movies, from a total of maybe three hours, you get a really strong sense of life there. They say with the whole shooting match, it's about, um, it's really, it's kind of like slackery. It's just sort of like one of those hangout movies. And they say he, without realizing it, made a movie about alcoholism because just everybody there is drinking in every scene. And it didn't occur to him. It was just, you know, part of the flavor of that space that he was working in. Have you ever seen Wake and Fright? Oh, yeah. Wake and Fright's great. That's That's another one about drinking. Talk about that. That's directed by Ted Kotcheff, who also directed the first Rambo movie, which I think is a great one to experience the Pacific Northwest with. Mm. That movie just is in love with the Pacific Northwest. Well, Wake and Fright, I mean, that's like a never go to small town Australia movie. It's uh, that's actually actually a good example, I think, of um, these sort of hometown because it's basically this guy trying to trying to get to um, across, basically across the country so he can fly back to London to see his girlfriend. And he gets stuck in a, this like small, uh, you know, town, I totally spacing on the name of the town. Uh, and he just sort of falls in with these locals. And then his life just spirals out of control from there. And it's just the drinking in that movie. Like you feel like you have a hangover by the end of it, too. Mm. So the question is, do you have to be from a place to make a great, honest movie about it? Because Ted Kotcheff is neither from Australia or the Pacific Northwest. He's um, he's from, he's from Toronto, I think. I think some some things are universal, like Wake and Fright to me. Also, as someone who's never been to Australia, it seemed like it was you know, certainly very damning of Australia. It wasn't exactly a positive movie, but you can also apply what happens in that film, I think, to any sort of small town. And then again, I'm also a total city slicker, so that's my, that's kind of me maybe also being negative. But that idea of the of this sort of a, a, a sinister uh, quality to these sort of small town, you know, everyone doing the same thing, everyone knows each other, uh, you know, that, that seems a little more universal to me than only specifically about Australia, where as that movie is definitely very uh, much so about Australia. Uh, you know, it's like even David Lynch can kind of do that, too, I think. I think at this point I would be more interested in a movie about small town, rural America or England or Australia or whatever that doesn't think there's something sinister underneath it. When was the last time you saw a movie set in like... The calm, quiet suburbs at the heart of America where somebody wasn't murdered, you know? Hey, all the serial killers live in the suburbs, man. <laughs> not, uh, not what's-his-face, not Son of Sam. Yeah, he was the only one. He was a pretty good one, though. Yeah, he, he was all right. He was big. <laughs> I, think it, I think it takes a certain sensitivity if you're going to make a film about a setting that you don't have much experience with historically, you know, just something that you've come to and you've noticed things. Just as you guys were talking, I was thinking about Baghdad Cafe and how overimposed the look of that film is. It feels like they had in their mind the look of the film that they wanted for that movie. Yeah. And it has no sensitivity to 
what it would actually be like. It just feels off. You know, it, it was a French filmmaker, I, I, I think, that made that. I might not be 100% on that. And it just feels like it's so it's so fake and there's no authenticity. And it's just, it, it's so grating within like the first five minutes of like these, these tourists that are coming through this town. And, uh, you know, they have all these bags and stuff and just the editing and the way it's shot. I think the editing ruins it in a lot of ways. And I think editing and how you cut something like the great thing about Twin Peaks was like the transitions of like the uh, the lights changing. He was one of the first guys to start using the lights changing and like street signs to sort of show the passage of time. Like it was just gorgeous. And I think timing really factors into how you approach a setting. It's interesting on TV because I guess you can watch something evolve too. Because I, I, I mean, Homicide, my God, the way that captured Baltimore and captured Baltimore over a spread of years, you learn a lot about Baltimore. You could watch that show on mute and feel like you understood that city. And, and Naked City, which I mentioned before, which was this TV show that recently they just released the whole show on DVD. So y'all should get it. Uh, it was shot in the early 60s. It was, it was a crime show all shot live, handheld in New York City. And there's absolutely, it is a priceless historical document if you're interested in the city. Because they just, through the course of the show, wound up in every neighborhood, in every borough. And there's these small moments where you just learn something about the space that nobody would ever consciously preserve. Like I was watching one the other day where they went on a, um, they were on a police chase down uh, on the west side in the 70s. And they cut through what's now Boat Basin, that bar. It's, uh, it's under the highway 79th. And uh, it's like this kind of like nice, fancy waterfront bar. But they go to that location in the 60s, and it was this giant, gorgeous fountain. And it's just gone now, really, without record. And these are, I feel like it's so important that we have filmmakers, particularly young filmmakers, willing to just go out and film where they are. Because the beautiful thing about film is film will destroy time. And it will destroy the the regency of time over space. So you could... If you do an area right, you can preserve that one-of-a-kind emotional and physical undercurrent of that neighborhood forever, and nobody can touch it. And if you do it wrong, you you blow it. Yeah, like Vincent Gallo owns Buffalo, New York. Woody Allen, to an extent, owns a certain part of New York. John Ford still owns Monument Valley, and it's been half a century. Yeah. But he just shot it so well. And David Simon now, of course, owns Baltimore. Yeah. And owns Louisiana to a certain extent with yeah. Treme. Hey, what about um, Nebraska? Alexander Payne. Did you see that? No, I still haven't seen it, but I'm really excited to because I feel like it's a great example of That's a small this. town, not a non-sinister movie. Really? Yeah. You, you probably, I mean, there, it has this sort of melancholia aspect, but it's not about the city. I can't think of the last one before that. Maybe that movie, Beautiful Girls, with Michael Rappaport and mm. Natalie Portman. Which is a pretty good movie. It was a good movie. But it's like once a decade, you get a small town movie where that's more somebody of a, doesn't get killed. That's more of a 90s thing, and you kind of almost have to look towards uh, more family-friendly stuff. I think, uh, you know, once you get to like G and PG... Then you start seeing these small town and uh, suburban areas presented in just like a storytelling way rather than uh, something bad's going on. Which way. is interesting because Pete and Pete, I think um, that old TV show, Pete and Pete, which was a kid's Great show, show. yeah, That nails suburban New Jersey in the early 90s. That is spot on with a nail gun. Just you cannot 
you cannot touch it. It is. It was shot in the oranges, and it's just this perfect. Yeah, the the house in the beginning. Um, I had a friend when I was a kid uh, in West Orange, and it was his house is in the beginning of really. Uh, of the it's in it's not the house that they use for the actual show it's the house where they're standing and playing on the lawn that that song and all that oh with the lawnmower i guess so yeah wow yeah that's his uh that was his house they got kicked out of that town in the third season so it's west orange for the first two seasons and then it's somewhere else actually it might have been south orange now that i think of it but uh i don't know anyway it was his house it's a directional orange it's orange (laughs) i guess to bring it back just a quick mention to um when you're talking about dealing with kids and finding them in high schools and stuff, how you felt like with Red Hook Summer, you know, they weren't that good and stuff. When I saw recently in the Michelle Gondry film, The We and the I, they nailed being on a bus right after school lets out in the city and like all the kids on the bus and all their big conversations and loudness and like playing pranks on each other and throwing things at each other and everything. They, they got that so well. And the kids were all immaculate and apparently spent like three years with them finding the right kids, finding these great kids where they could get this authenticity. And he really worked hard on that one. It shows like it's it's tight. It's you can't get like a a, a hair through it like it's seamless. And uh, these kids are all fantastic in it. So that's one definitely to check out if you want if you want that kid vibe, if you want that. uh, And I think right as I just said the word kid, I was like, oh, kids perfect example of an overimposed aspect where like there are those long scenes and kids of talking and it feels like this almost Altman-esque overlap that they they wanted in that film that didn't necessarily pertain to how they would necessarily talk you know there are these honest moments in kids and then there are these disjointed moments that just feel like oh let's do a scene like that let's do this like that and it just feels like too many different things but there are great moments in kids like small, tiny bits of like walking into a corner store, walking out of a corner store, they just feel perfect. And it's a shame that it's kind of bogged down by a lot of the other stuff in that film. I think Gondry actually, uh, you know, to go back to him, is always is always a master of that sort of homegrown look. I mean, that's his look, number one. I mean, you know, everything's sort of made out of cardboard. Or, yeah, either or, he's either he's making it by hand, right. or he's capturing it perfectly in its already existence. You know, yeah, like Block Party versus Block Party. Be kind rewind. Be kind rewind has those great moments in it too. But Block Party, that was the one where he really fell in love with uh, location. I feel like and. Uh, that block party, be kind, rewind, the we and the I thing, you can really view it as almost a trilogy. It really has that carryover through line. I think be kind, rewind is probably the weakest of the three, even though it has some great moments in it. It really captures that Passaic area. Though. It does, yeah. At its best, that's what it's doing. You know and- what does these really well? Horror movies. Because th- now I'm thinking about that Passaic area, and the best I can come up with for... Hoboken, Jersey City, Passaic, all that is the Toxic Avenger. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Toxic Avenger. Those trauma movies in the mid-80s really are spot on. Trauma had it down. Absolutely. So what would your picks be if you had to pick one movie that you think perfectly captures the place you know as you know it? I guess, I mean, probably Woody Allen. I think he really captures, I mean, Annie Hall. I mean, not that, that, but that's maybe what I think of when I think of New York as I'll think of Annie Hall, whereas that's not really that maybe the New York, I mean, like, you know, blue in the face is like the that's 90s New York I grew up in. But I don't know that I want to point to that movie as like the end all of New York City. Sure. I think uh, Noah Baumbach 
Squid and the Whale, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that was like, I, I mean, we grew up in the same exact area, Jenna. And did you relate to that one? Like the looks of like the interior of the houses and like the blocks and stuff. I felt like that was pretty crystal clear Park Slope. Yeah, um, it feel it, it definitely. I think it's more more of your side of the slope. Oh, than my okay. side of the slope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mr. Jealousy is another film of his that that really captures that '90s New York vibe, and that that kind of expands a bit into Manhattan. There's some shots in like Brooklyn, some stuff in Manhattan around like the IFC Center kind of vibe. That really captures it uh, very, very well um, and much better than like Francis Ha. Like I feel like Francis Ha was so artificial. And yeah, agreed. It was just so overimposed to bring it back to like what I was talking about with Baghdad. But it's almost, it's kind of the, you know, it is reflective of Brooklyn now in a lot of ways. But for me, it, it felt really detached. Yeah, it. I can't go out and find it. You know, I right. can't go out and experience it. It's like this... It's it feels like a lie, essentially. Whereas he's somebody who previously I would say really does capture areas remarkably well. What about you, John? You got Florida, you got Jersey. What what's true to you, John? Sopranos. <laughs> Sopranos really nails the um the interplay the life of Goodfellas does this too. The life of an Italian who has family in and out of the city and in Jersey and in New York State and in the city and this sort of just bouncing around between these three poles and um, just all the small details down to the songs that are playing and down to the way people drive, the way people dress, what people expect of each other in their family dynamic. I think Sopranos and Goodfellas really hit that New York, New Jersey, Italian thing very well. My mother, um, she lived in Brooklyn her whole life until she was like in her late 20s and fled. And, um, that was, that was like the, the seventies and she lived in, um, I forget the name of the neighborhood, but it's where Saturday Night Fever was filmed. Bay Ridge. Bay Ridge. Yeah. She's Bay Ridge. And, um, her friend growing up had that job in that paint store that John Travolta has in Saturday Night Fever. Wow. Mixing the paint in that specific paint store in Bay Ridge was her friend's job. So she's to this day, she says the best possible look at. Brooklyn in the 70s and why she left New York for a few years is Saturday Night Fever. Actually, Serpico talk about, you know, places that are unflattering about New York. That That's a very New York movie. Uh, I think in both like context, I mean, you see all these places and I always think about there's that one scene where he goes to a party and he's, you know, the one cop, uh, you know, at, the, at this party with a bunch of like hippies. And he's trying to talk to people and trying to be friendly, but everyone keeps dismissing him. That's a great scene. Yeah. And, and then he turns to his girlfriend who's throwing the party and goes, how come all of your friends are on their way to becoming somebody, but nobody's actually anything? You know, yeah. everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm an actor. What are you in? And I work in a restaurant. You know, <laughs> I feel like that's very New York. That's a New York party. To me, the ultimate one is, um, for that era anyway, is taking a Pelham 123. Yeah. Taking a Pelham 123, just the little, the demographics on that subway. The way people will interact with each other is such a very specific, perfect... Which is funny because the remake of Taking Apollo 1, 2, 3... The inter- is meaningless. The interactions on the subway and the entire look of it totally imposed, you know, no consideration for capturing the vibe of people on a New York City subway train. It's a perfect fake subway, yeah. yeah. Whereas Shame, I thought, really kind of caught the subway again. It did because it was so bare. Yeah, like, and there Black this- Swan, I thought, got... The modern subways. Whenever people capture subways in a way that 
maybe there's like three people on a on a subway car that's going a really long way towards capturing it properly because a lot there are always those great moments where it's like it's you and like four other people like on a subway car and nobody's paying any attention to anybody else and it's just everybody's in their own world and whenever you see that empty-ish car that's a great indicator i think the more i think about your question john the more i'm thinking of like things that make me feel new york actually i would say it's not a movie but any beastie boys music video that's 90s new york to me absolutely I think that they really captured well, their, it. Their music videos are incredible. I mean, they have a spat of wonderful ones. And I think Criterion even put them out. Yeah. They're all Spike Jones, who yeah. we mentioned earlier has a great there you go. capturer of time and place. I think uh, to close it out, the one that I would really, really, really recommend now that I think of it is uh, the documentary The Cruise. I think that's one of the best New York City movies I've ever seen. And that's a, it's about a double-decker bus tour guide, Timothy Speed Levitch. And it was, it was directed by the guy who went on to make uh, Capote and Moneyball. And it's just this low-budget DV documentary that he shot about this eccentric uh, Truman Capote meets uh, Woody Allen meets, but like with this sinister vibe too underlying it. And it's, it, most of the movie is him remarking upon buildings. And uh, he has this almost like beat poetry-esque take on awnings and stone structures on buildings and everything. And that's a lot of, like when you're walking through New York City and you're enjoying the vibe, sometimes you capture, like you look up and you see this chunk on a building that you never noticed before. And it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And it's just some existing chunk that wasn't taken out on like maybe five floors up on like a building that just blows your fucking mind. And that's a whole documentary about the appreciation of that sort of thing. I got to watch that. Yeah, you guys got to check. Did you see that one, John? Or You sent me clips of it. Yeah, you got to watch gotta give me the whole thing. The whole thing. That's a, that's a hell of a movie. So, uh, yeah, we are going to take a break. We will be right back with the mailbag. And now, a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. I was talking to a friend of mine about sports when it hit me. I don't know anything about sports. In fact, I know so little that all of my knowledge of the game of basketball comes from the movie Teen Wolf. So I know if there was a werewolf player on the court, he would be the best player. But every time I watch basketball, what do you know? 100% human players. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R. Bob wants us to talk about Sinatra's great movies. I guess he likes Sinatra as an actor. I haven't really seen much Sinatra. Have you guys seen him as an actor? I've really only seen the musicals. So neither of you have seen Manchurian Candidate, is what I'm hearing? I've never seen that one. I've never okay. seen Man with a Golden Arm. I saw nope. Manchurian Candidate, and I don't. I, I clearly don't remember it because I have the, no oh, memory of phenomenal. it. I've seen the poster for Man with a Golden Arm, which it's is great gorgeous. Poster. Yeah. Sinatra is a great actor. One of my favorite Sinatra movies is um, Suddenly, which is from I think '54, and it's um, it's terrific. And Sinatra's amazing, and he's the best part of the movie. He's opposite Sterling Hayden, and he blows Sterling Hayden out of the movie. But Suddenly came pretty much off the market for decades because what suddenly is about is it's about this young guy with a military background who Sinatra plays 
who um, finds out that the president will be arriving by train to this small town. So he finds a house on a hill and he brings a bolt action rifle to the house and sits in the window of the house with this bolt action rifle waiting for the president to come by to snipe him in the head from a distance. Oh, so once November 22nd, 1963 happened, suddenly it was pretty much off the table. Right. For a very long time. <laughs> but it's really good. There's this kid in it. There's a child actor in that subplot's garbage. But all the stuff where it's just about Sinatra preparing for this, and he's just getting into the space of a guy who's going to kill the president, he's terrific in it. He's got those bright eyes, and they just he looks so sharp in camera. that He's got the Gibson thing, where his eyes just, like, when he wants to, can look so menacingly crazy. Sure, just yeah. Just from their clarity alone. Mm. So that's yeah. definitely one. That I'll, maybe that'll be the first one to check out. I think it's public domain. It's worth checking out. Yeah, we'll take a look. This next one is from Frank, and he wishes to be named in full Frank H. Robinson, photographer. That's how he wants to be credited. You know, we try and accommodate our fans here. His question is, who do you think would win in a fight, Paul Thomas Anderson or Paul W.S. Anderson? Which is, of course, who directed uh, Resident Evil and a bunch of those other ones. W.S. could probably get Jovovic on his side. Yeah, that's a that's an asset, right? That's, She's a little wiry. Yeah. She can. I feel like she could do some damage. Yeah, I bet Paul Thomas Anderson has like a whole cast of people just waiting in the wings to his his waiting in the wings cast would be better. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, you, they'd be better actors, but would they be better fighters? Yeah, he's got no bruise crew. You need like a WS as a bruise crew. You need those stunt guys. You know. Mm. Yeah. You know what? Tom Cruise would hook him up with a lot of the stunt guys. Tom Cruise is friends with everybody. Tom Cruise, when, when people talk about Tom, working with Tom Cruise, they say he knows everybody's name. He knows all the stunt people, all the catering. Everybody knows their first name. He knows something about them. That's part of like his Scientology, like know everybody, be nice to everybody kind of thing that he's on. And um, that's like the good thing about Scientology is that they're really nice to you. <laughs> yeah, but W.S. Anderson is like six Resident Evils deep. So I think he knows... He's got to know the stunt guys by now. I'm then, sure, yeah. He what probably if recycles Paul W.S. Anderson is actually a pseudonym for Wes Anderson? Does oh, anybody shit. consider that? Um, W.S., Wes, yeah. W.S. Like, what if it's his <laughs> Richard Bachman? Ooh. It's just sometimes he makes movies as Paul W.S. I love it. So think about that, Frank. That's right, Frank. Frank. So, wait, who's winning? What did we decide? Paul W.S. Anderson? Yeah, Miliovic. I'm trying to think if there's anything... Daniel Day-Lewis, man. He's he's going to go method on that shit. He's going to kill someone. Yeah, he's going to become like an ultimate fighter for yeah, like he a couple years. Yeah, fifth element. No, forget it. <laughs> She's got... She could do all the flips. But can she do it anymore? That was 20 years ago. Is that Willis is ago? still doing it. That's true. I mean, why can't she? She can, she can do it again. I got faith in her. Wasn't Statham in one of those Resident Evil movies? Because that's a game changer. He might have been. He might have been in... Uh, what about Joaquin? He probably knows Statham. He probably knows Somebody's all these guys. Know if you're making these movies, you know everybody. Paul W. Sanderson, he's winning. He's Paul got Thomas Statham. Sanderson, he'll, he'll have a more attractive crew around him of like these great actors that you like, but they can't fight worth a damn. I don't care. Daniel Day-Lewis, he, he, can, he was great in The Boxer. And you know what? I remember on Joe Rogan's podcast, he talked about The Boxer is probably the only film... They really look like they're fighting and they really look like boxers. Like he really looks like a boxer and he's really doing the moves properly. He says that's he's seen tons and tons of boxing films. That's the only one that really nails it. So to Daniel Day-Lewis's credit, 
He looked like a boxer in that film, and he boxed like a boxer. But so guess it's going to be like Resident Evil, where you have Daniel Day Lewis uh, being surrounded by all of these zombies in the end, who are going to just destroy him. But he'll put up a good fight. Yeah, W. Sanderson going to fucking destroy him just because uh, contacts alone. You go through his fucking cell phone, he's going to find like fifty people that they're going to be there. And they're gonna be like, uh, you know, bulky. He'll have like these bulky teamsters. He could too. get the guy who played the big zombie at the end of that Resident Evil movie, the one who had like the machine gun. Yeah, that guy was huge. There you go. Plus, again, he's definitely just Wes Anderson under a pseudonym, so he could get all the Wes Anderson guys too, which includes Bruce Willis. There you go. Includes Ed Norton, who's probably he just looks very angry to me all the time. Yeah, he'd probably want to hit somebody. Paul Thomas Anderson can get Maya Rudolph to sing a really high-pitched note and maybe shatter some glasses. (laughs) Like a banshee. Yeah. Yeah, Like the X-Men. Wasn't there that that. X-Men banshee or whatever? Yeah, that's that's the ace in the sleeve. Yeah. Is Maya Rudolph shrill sing-screaming at these people. Just think about it. And plus, you know, I don't know. When I've seen clips of Paul Thomas Anderson, he looks like he's been in a fight. Like there's something like he has that John D'Amico beard thing going on a lot of the time you know i'm not saying you look like you've been in a fight but he looks like does my beard look like it's been in a fight your beard looks like it's been in a fight beard your beard's seen some action yeah i'm gonna agree with that that's fair all right next question this is from carlo and he asks who would you pick to play yourself in the lead of a film about your life and he says spoiler alert the answer for cody is david cross Apparently, he thinks I look like David Cross. Do I look like David Cross? I don't think you look like David Cross, but I would love to see David Cross play you. I don't see it. I don't see it either. Who would I pick for myself? Who would you guys pick? I got to think about this one. Tony Jaa. Tony Jaa? That would be great. You know what? You kind of look like Tony Jaa. No, I don't, but there's no reason no, 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 it has no, to no. be someone who looks like me. No, no, no. You kind of look like Tony Jaa. Your face, your shape. I'm going to put like them next to each other on the website or something. There's something there. There's some crossover. I only said Tony Jaw because I'm looking at a Tony Jaw poster right now. But guess what? You're right. There's <laughs> okay. something about you. There's a Tony Jaw. Tony Jaw is probably like a foot shorter than you, but whatever. I was briefly a monk in Thailand also, so we have that in common. There's something about your eyes. I'm just saying that there's a Tony Jaw vibe there. I, I, I can see it. Put him in a beard, give him some glasses, put a, some coffee by him and some notes and a Sharpie and... Some headphones. That's my and, jam, yeah. All that and, stuff uh, is Jeans and black socks and uh, his, his coat on the floor. I think that might be Jenna's. No, that's mine. Uh, that's yours. All right. Then Tony Ja, John D'Amico. How about you, Jenna? It's got to be one of those like funny, cute, whatever girls that get all those roles now. <laughs> you know, that's like a thing, right? <laughs> oh, I was, oh, I was just going to pick someone I thought was attractive and then just uh, you know, be like, oh, you're young you Jane Tony Fonda. Ja? You could have Tony Ja. I'll switch. <laughs> yeah, right. Jane Fonda? Young Jane Fonda in Barbarella, the story of my life. Oh, wow. A Jenna story. <laughs> All right. I'll take Tina Fey. I feel like most most chicks will take Tina Fey. You know, when I'm, whenever I'm on one of those fucking dating sites or whatever, everybody self-describes as Tina Fey. All those girls. Yeah. It's always, oh, I'm, you know, I'm Liz Lemon. It's probably just because they enjoy eating cheese and like crying at night. You know, it's like yeah. it's pretty universal. Tracy Morgan. I can see it. <laughs> But it, that's a weird thing. Like, people love that fucking show. I never got into it. Dirty Rock, Dirty Rock was great. Oh, yeah. God. Stop gagging up on me. Oh, that was that was a great show. In my ears, I just saw, I just heard, you know, two angry people and made me very claustrophobic. Dirty Rock's cool because it was like... Far away from me. 
a parody of Mad Men at the same time Mad Men was going on. Like they were, they were essentially the same show separated into a different era, and one of them was a comedy. I've never seen Mad Men either. But Mad Men's good. They're both great. But the Jack Donaghy, Liz Lemon thing. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, it was perfect Peggy, Peggy and Don. Yeah. And now 30 Rock's gone, and the Peggy-Don dynamic has changed so much that it's unrecognizable. So they, it evaporated, that moment. <laughs> that moment was gone. I'm guessing Don is John Hamm, right? Yeah. All right. And Peggy is somebody? Elizabeth Moss. Oh, okay. She's terrific. I know her face. She's going to be big when that show's done, I think. I hope so. I, Mad Men is... I, I feel like I said this recently. It was, it, that's like the only TV show right now where I feel like it has such complex, well, interesting, done female characters. Justified. I haven't seen it. That's my rebuttal. Justified. Great female characters. Yeah? Yeah, man. You got to check out Justified. Because you'll, you'll come for the Oliphant and you'll stay for the Goggins. I could never get into Justified. Oh, I love Justified. Because you know what it was? I tried to get into that and Breaking Bad at the same time, and it was just unfair. I can I can see that. Justified, man. Justified's on fire. Fucking Rappaport was on this last season, and he was just nailing it. Good for him. I love Rappaport. Me too. He's a good guy. Any of the Deep Blue Sea cast are welcome in my home at any time. <laughs> that's a, that's a, be a great, like, uh, you know, knitted kind of uh, embroidery thing to have in the house. Any of the Deep Blue Sea cast yeah. is Saffron welcome. Burroughs, Thomas Jane. Oh, Saffron Burroughs. LL, they can all come over. If it's she fine. ever needs a bed... If she ever needs somewhere to stay, Saffron Burrows, I'm pretty sure she can knock on any door in the world. Oh, yeah, I'll take her. Yeah. <laughs> she could play me in a movie. Oh, man. I'll just be Saffron Burrows. Uh, see, I didn't even pick someone for Actually, me Actually, Deep Blue Sea was essentially my life story anyway, so it doesn't matter. The question's moot. How is it your life story? Well, I briefly spent some time working on the brains of Mako Sharks, and it all went to hell, and LL Cool J almost died, but there Saffron Burrows didn't stay. Perfect. Lines up perfectly. Yeah. So wait, who the fuck is me? I can't be stuck with David Cross. That doesn't even fit. Lizzie Kaplan. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I wonder who I'd want to be, even. Can't I would love to see Jim Jarmusch play you, actually. Play me? Yeah. yeah. I suppose. Or like, you know... Um, I like him in stuff. He was funny on Board to Death in that one episode. He's always funny. I always like him in appearance, like when he makes a cameo. He's funny as shit, yeah. Like, even maybe more than I like his movies. John Lurie could play you, but just because he's tall and thin. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe I need to be my own self, you know, person, actor. I mean, I've played, I've played roles in films I've made, so. You could be your own Lena Dunham. Oh, no. Ali did that <laughs> once. There's a movie called The Greatest from 77, and it's the life story of Muhammad Ali, and Muhammad Ali plays Muhammad Ali. If it's good enough for Ali, it's good enough for me. Yeah. I got to check out that one. That sounds good. Is it any good, or is it just whatever? To be honest, I never saw it. I saw the trailer. Oh, Lord. We got to get on that. Yeah, maybe we should do it. Me a and you are big on of... Ali, too. Oh, I love Ali. How did we just drop the ball? There's a great 30 for 30 about Ali. Yeah, that's the best in that whole series. That's Larry the... Muhammad. And that's... Uh, who made that one? Maisley Brothers. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. Jenna, you got to get on that. After you're done with action movies, get on fucking sports documentaries. Oh, God. You have to. They you don't understand. If you, even if you can't stand the sight of sports... A great sports documentary will put you in a great mood and show you some amazing human elements. Or a terrible mood because Larry Muhammad is devastating. Yeah. As long as I can sit you both down and make you watch really esoteric, surrealist, bullshit drug movies, and we're down. All right. It's a trade-off. <laughs> so I guess for me, 
you know, that's a cop out to say I'll play myself. Uh, um, you know what? Fuck it. Thomas Ian Griffith from the movie Excessive Force from like the late 80s. He's playing me. He's like a six foot seven guy and he didn't get enough love. And he's been in like one or two other things since he was in like, I think he was in that movie Vampires, John Carpenter's Vampires. And he was in a couple other shitty, he was in one of the Karate Kids or something. He's fucking great. He, he didn't get enough love. He's got these really long legs for kicking. And I just want to be played by a long-legged, really tall, skinny guy. And uh, he fits the bill. Maybe Crispin Glover could play me. That would be great. That would be good. Yeah, sold. That'd be good. He's hired. He has the job. Ooh, he would be good. We haven't seen enough of him lately. I guess see more of Crispin. Chris. He's probably the best part of Back to the Future, to be honest. Yeah, he definitely is. He he steals that whole fucking movie. I was just watching Wild at Heart, and I forgot he was even in it. Yeah, he's with also the like, sandwiches that he's yeah. making. Uh, and the Santa Claus, whatever. Or yeah. Something. He's wonderful. All right, guys. Thank you for the questions. Everybody sent them in. And you guys can send us in questions whenever you want. We don't need to, you don't have to wait for us to ask for them on Facebook. Just send them to podcast at smugfilm.com. We will answer them. We will credit you. We will make you happy with our answers, I hope. And uh, subscribe, rate, comment on iTunes. That's really helpful for the ranking on the site. It lets complete strangers know we exist. Puts us a little higher in the rankings. And then when people look for great film podcasts, they find us. They're able to discover us. You know, word of mouth is wonderful too. Tell friends and stuff. But this allows you to tell complete strangers how great we are. And allow them to have this wonderful experience where they say, Oh, I found this great new podcast. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know these guys existed. And there they are. And they're awesome. So do that. That really helps. And any last words from you guys? A little short, little declarative statement. Watch Lethal Weapon. And uh, Jenna, any any short information that you want to communicate before we go? I just rewatched Fargo on Netflix. Now that there's, I guess, a TV show coming out. Shit. Oh, really? Well, the movie's Bad. great. And I forgot how good that movie was, The movie's actually. incredible. When I, I watched that pilot episode of the TV show... And uh, ooh, it's terrible, but it made me want to watch Fargo really, really bad. Uh, so, yeah, watch Fargo. That's yeah. good advice. And I guess my advice would be, uh, you know what? I, I'm halfway through Pervert's Guide to Ideology, the new Zizek one. And I wasn't big on Zizek, the other stuff of his that I saw. It felt like a lot of the stuff that he was saying and making into a profound thing were kind of like film analysis 101 stuff, like his take on Psycho and all that. But this new one, it feels very cohesive, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about ideology and how that pertains to film and all that. And uh, that one's worth checking out. I'm not entirely done with it, but I'm enjoying it thoroughly so far. It's like two and a half hours, I think. Really good stuff. So uh, that's my recommendation, my little short little thing. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye, everybody. 